This is the Training Talks podcast with your host Richard Kelly of RK Fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. So I came across this post yesterday on Facebook. I can't remember whether it was from BuzzFeed or Lad Bible, but it's one of those type of things, you know, where they give you these random like articles about something. Yep. But it was in conjunction with the NHS. Article was titled The Best Ways You Can Get Fit, Get Better Health Without Going to the Gym. <laughs> And I know I shouldn't have done it, right? So first of all, I haven't actually read the article because the article name just triggered me off. And I was thinking, let's see what's in the comments. That's what annoyed me, all the comments. So you got people going, I don't go to the gym. I just walk and I've lost six stone. Or you get someone that's going, I just eat avocados. And someone else is going, you don't need to go to the gym. I went to the gym 30 years ago and it's full of meatheads and I'm sure it is now. And I'm thinking, why has the NHS, who is supposed to be there for health, who's supposed to be encouraging health, discouraging a place that you can go and get healthy? Why? Why have they not written an article saying alternative ways rather than even mentioning the gym, rather than making that a point? Why mention it? Usually with these type of things, they get an article submitted by somebody random or one of their contributor people, and then that's what they put up. So it's like paid for random person. That's the problem with the media and articles in this day and age, is that you get a lot of nonsense or non-factual articles which are just there to catch your attention. Yeah. Clickbait. That's it. There's no actual substance to the article or any proper hard facts. It's just, you know, I'm going to talk about a certain subject. I'm going to mess it up and I'm going to leave. Well, they don't need to be fully fact-checked, do they? Because as long as they include enough opinion and it's stated that it's someone's opinion on something, it's okay to put up. Yeah, that's true. But as you said, the thing that annoyed you the most is if it's meant to be in conjunction with the NHS, it should have been to the point and should have been in a way where, as you said, it didn't put being in a gym against being outside of the gym yeah it should have made it out to be a combination one thing that i feel like the nhs should have done years ago even when we started in the industry was find a way to better subsidize people's gym memberships interesting okay because think about it with health being where it is in this country and obesity being so high there's so many avenues and pathways they could use to bring the numbers down of obesity but it's like they're totally missing it it's I think it's because at the highest level, all they can do is think about the political, not the logistical side of it. Well, there's, there's another factor as well. Is the NHS is really good for trauma. So in a car accident, need to have an operation to sort your leg out. Great. Right? Have cancer, need to get that seen to and go into some sort of cancer uh, process whereby you've got pain relief, you've got treatment. Great. Long-term planning, stopping the problems that... Uh, like obesity as you said no good because they don't have a long term plan if you go and see uh, your GP about stuff like health they give you a vague couple of things right they still advocate that eat well plate they still are suspicious about using resistance work in gyms they're still pushing this concept of, of not overdoing it right because they don't fully understand and they don't have the background to talk about it but so actually on your obesity point if the NHS were to subsidise gym memberships for all of the adult population in the UK, 
right, which is about 53 million people, it would cost just over half a billion per okay. year. It's estimated that by 2050, the cost of obesity to the NHS will be 9.7 billion. So for half a billion a year from now, I can save you a fortune. It's going to cost the same amount to do it now, from now forward, as it would be to to just wait till 2050 with the current situation. So, on that point, I will start drafting my letter now. I will ask for a salary of half a billion to sort out obesity. So, together, that's one billion. You've saved 8.7 billion. There are some people who, obviously, that would massively benefit because we've just blanket, blanket numbered that, right? But if you did it as an average of £10 per person, you could even take people and go, right, these people earn enough money that they don't need to have a you know additional £10 supplement. But these people at the bottom end, the low, low kind of income people... They could benefit from it. But that's what I was thinking. If you gave it to low and traditional middle class income households and not upper class, that is, that takes a high percentage of it. And on top of that, that'll make a big difference, especially for the lower income. Yeah. Because the problem is in, in those areas, there's always gyms there. Yeah. But it's having the money to take away from everything else you need in life to go towards the gym. And unless it sits high in the pecking order of your priority, which for most people in that situation it doesn't, mm. then you lose it. Well, I mean, also as well, is even if it does, it's a cost that they might not necessarily be able to, to handle because how much is... like Yeah, you can get those gyms that are £10 a month now, right? And you, But the vast majority of gyms, I still think, are probably about somewhere in the £40 range per month. Your average leisure centre gym membership is £24 a month. So think about that. With the ten pound discount, that's fourteen. I would say for lower income households, I'd go to probably a fifteen pound discount. If you offer that to people, you can offer further incentives for them doing that because they're spending their time in the gym. They're less likely to do other things, right? It's less burden on on other areas. So the other factor is education, because most people don't realise how simple it is just to get a good sort of healthy base in terms of nutrition and exercise. You don't have to do a lot to make a big difference. You know, it's it's obvious stuff like eating more vegetables, eating more fruit, eating fresh fresh food where possible, and trying to take more opportunities to go for walks and you know being more generally active will have a huge benefit. You're right. However, nothing can really be properly structured exercise that you could do in the gym or you could do at a Pilates studio or yoga studio, which isn't conventionally called a gym but still has the same effects. Yeah, you, I mean, you're, you're totally right. But it's a start point, it's a base point. And what I'm, what I'm saying from an education perspective is if you get kids to think about being active and being healthy and you get them to think about good nutrition, you resolve a lot of the obesity issue early on because there's an awful lot of people who don't seem to know what good basic diet is and what good basic exercise are. So not to go off point too much, but that's one of the reasons why I've started a charity. Is because in London, one of the key things that a lot of children don't have that we had growing up was access to sports facilities. They're getting rid of so many of them. Yep. So if they don't have that outlet they used to have to understand how the benefits of sports and fitness, how are they ever going to get that? Which means there's more people in like 10 years or in into adolescence who will end up in the NHS health system as obese because they have no way or they don't understand properly how to exercise that's true 
And this stuff's fundamental and it's just getting cut out and, and being missed. The government has to make hard choices, but I think they're making the wrong choices. Yeah, it's, it's short-termist, but that's, that's what gets them re-elected rather than that's what makes them good at their job. That's true. So one thing I try to educate a lot of my clients with, you know, the ones I've had for, let's say, eight to ten years, right, is the thing that's changed over that period of time isn't so much how much they can lift. Because, you know, if you go through the normal stages of training and you're trying to get adaptations, you're always going to get better. Right. But the thing that will change is how long they need to warm up for, how much recovery they need, and what other prehab they need to do, like their massages and stuff like that. Because people forget your body will adjust and get stronger, but you can't mess about with father time in a way. Right. It's always going to be there, which means your joints will take longer to lubricate. Yeah. It will take longer for you to stretch. Your sleep quality will have to be better because that plays more of a role in everything you do. And I think a lot of people forget that and they think, okay, I can go in for five minutes, quickly do this, boom, 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 and my body's going to warm up the same way it did 10 years ago. You're hopefully trying to get is that that person gets stronger or gets more, more capable and becomes more aware of their own body as they go. So they implicitly understand more of this process as they go forward and understand more of how it gets involved in their life. And this is a slightly different topic, but this is about give and take. So what effectively Lawrence is doing here is adding stuff in that they need to do. And then they're starting to see where issues around their lifestyle are impacting their progress. So, for example, on, on the sleep thing, when you're 20 years old, you can get away with having, you know, a month's worth of five hours sleep. Right. With no real impact on gains. When you're 35 years old, you can't. When you're 50 years old, it's detrimental you're going to fall back because you are not properly preparing your body so what you end up doing is a load of poor sessions or you end up doing no sessions because in order to recover you're not there so one of the aspects that comes into play here is as you're going through this warm-up process and as you're seeing the benefit of it it's becoming aware of the other aspects that are required around your training in order to benefit you that was said perfectly <laughs> thank you when we talk about stuff like this I realise how much time I've put into developing a very, not even very, extremely analytical approach. So as well as having my menstrual cycle tracker, yep. last summer, because in the summers I always have more time to think and it just flows out of my mind, I also created a sleep rating system, which I now feel like after this summer, I want to combine with an intensity gauge. Okay, so hang on, talk me through this. Sleep sleep rating system. So it's not just time, it's also how good it is. So I don't want to go too deep into this side point, but there's certain things you can get out there in the market, like the Aura Ring, yes, which tracks a lot of things and tracks the sleep very well. Yeah. But you've always got that difference between what the Aura Ring says and how you feel. Yeah. And for some people of a certain psychological mindset, it's actually quite damaging because they can wake up and say, I feel alright The aura ring says You Are in terrible shape <laughs> Yeah And like with one or two of my clients That's really messed up their head So It showed me that You can't really Put the two together You can't really say that Someone's had four hours sleep So they can't really lift heavy Right Because that's what Usually you would think Would happen Yeah But You've missed out The key thing in between the two Which is How do they actually feel Yeah so my whole thing now is to put them together. So let's say you, Richard. 
over a three month period, I've tracked, I've given you a score every single time for your sleep. Right. But I've given you a score in terms of the amount of hours you've slept, but I've also cross-referenced that with a rating on how you feel. When I first wake up? No. When we're in the session. Okay. Right. Because there's always a difference there. But that's, that's another layer of complexity which I don't even want to get into. I've been texting people at four in the morning. So when you wake up, how do you feel? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anybody's ready for that. So once you put those two together, then you start to see a pattern. Like we said, listeners, with quite a few podcasts, you go with the different numbers in terms of percentage of their maxes. So with most clients, for the trainers out there, you should know roughly what they can do for 10 reps and so on with each exercise. Yeah. So then once I understand five hours sleep, but they still feel good, I say, okay, I can put 70% or 80% intensity yeah. on that on those exercises for the day. See what happens. Yeah, I get what you mean. Because effectively, what you're doing is looking at where they are in terms of recovery and then where they are in terms of the mentality perspective that comes into the session. Because obviously, you could have, for example, eight hours of perfect sleep. But then before your session, a lot of stuff's happened to you that's just made it go right. Now, your your sleep is great. Your aura ring, for example, is telling you you've had a perfect night's sleep. And you walk into the session, you go, oh, I should be perfect. But you're not encountering the fact that all the other stuff that's built up to that point as well has had an impact. And equally vice versa. You could have had a terrible night's sleep, three, four hours, but the rest of your morning has been fairly good, low level, low stress. You've had a nice preparation time. You've come to the gym. And really, it's like you've had six hours. Unlike a lot of situations, I'm doing this not for the short term, but for the long term. Once I've collected that data over a couple of months and tried different intensities with different scores of sleep and so on, then I have a foolproof plan. Because I know your body so well, I know that a five hour sleep will mean that I can push you to a max of about 80 to 90% intensity. Because I know most of the time you still feel fine when you've had five hours sleep. Yeah, and you can you can therefore ensure that the process you're putting into place for that person is the right one. And going back to the warm-up point with this is how you then approach the warm-up. Because if someone's had a poor, say, sleep rating on your sleep system, you might therefore modify the warm-up for that person. So it's not conventional... However, regardless of the person, once they get to a certain training age, I honestly believe all sessions should be 75 minutes. I don't believe an hour is long enough. And I say that because of that one circumstance there. The warm-up is essential. They've had a bad night's sleep. They need to do the warm-up, but the warm-up needs to be more comprehensive. Yeah, It can be the same exercises... But you need to try find a way to ramp up the intensity more to get them from, let's say, usually on zero, they're on minus 10. You need yeah. to get them from minus 10 all the way up to, let's say, 20% before you get them going. Funnily enough, my watch does this for me. My watch, when I do cardio work, gives me a performance condition number. The, the Theoretically, the highest number I can get is plus three. Most of the time, it gives me a zero, meaning I'm no better than I was the previous time. However... Sometimes you get a minus number, which means you're worse off. The only problem with that is is it only gives you that after a certain amount of time. So I think it's about five to ten minutes. It then tells you where you are because it's got some data to look at. On the 75 minutes front, that's a really interesting concept because in reality, you're right. 
like if, if you take most workouts that say we would do unless you're doing a technique based session because of time where you're only really working on one or two exercises and you're just really looking at technique if you're doing a proper session then you wouldn't do an hour you do more than that because to get into everything you need to get to it's going to take you 30 minutes 40 minutes as it is and you need to do that before you do anything serious so i would say about 60 percent of my clients we do 75 minutes or once a week one of the sessions per week would be 75 minutes some of my clients is even 90 but the person has to buy into it and when i say buy into it they need they need to buy into the complexity and the importance of the warm-up so some clients to this day who haven't truly bought into the concept of warm-ups so i do what i can yeah. however in my mind you know, for my satisfaction, I'll never be able to do stuff with them that I want to do because I understand that vital key of buying is in there. When you're talking about training age, you're really looking at someone who's, who's three years and over in terms of training age for that point. Because prior to that point, in terms of adaptation, you've got a year to two years of adaptation before things start slowing down. And that's when you can start selling in the value of the stuff outside the session to really benefit. Even with some people who have a higher training age, They've just never truly bought into warm-ups. It baffles me, but a lot of people, it may be down to the fact that their main focus there or the overriding strong focus is getting vanity as quick as possible. I sort of tend to believe that most people are hormone-driven and because they feel good from the workout they do, which in, in the cases you're probably thinking of are going to be largely men who do resistance work, I would imagine, because they get such a big adrenaline and testosterone boost as a result of doing those things they disregard the warm-up just as they disregard the sort of the post stretching stuff because it doesn't really add to their hormone you know boost because that's the stuff that doesn't it keeps them flat so funny thing about that i've had that quite a few times i think it happens more with men because of the ego and stuff like that what i do is i do a workout with them and I start messing about certain exercises and I do them at a ridiculously high level. So, good example. So, I'll purposely warm up before them, but let them see them warming up. Then they'll do, let's say, they'll do hanging knee raises. Yeah. Then I'll just do a front lever. <laughs> and I'll rep out front levers just like they're repping out the hanging knee raises. And at some point, when you've, when you've like done exercises five levels above what they're doing, it clicks in their mind. So what am I missing? Yeah. And then you have some potential to get a buy-in for a warm-up. Some potential. It's a lot of work, though, just to get people to warm up first. I know a lot of front levers. My abdominals can't really handle it, but I have to push through. So let's talk about some examples of these things. Let's get into a little bit of how you'd warm somebody up a bit more specifically, because I think we sort of danced around general stuff, but let's get into it a little bit. So... Let's say we're, we're trying to warm up a 10,000 meter runner, so a 10K runner, versus someone who, who does sprinting. There's a big difference between the two of them. How would the warm up differ? So, one of the key things which would be universal between the two of them would be movement check in and glute activation. Both of them need it. Yeah. The big differences would be the plyometric work which you need for a sprinter. The key element which is different between the two is that explosive nature in sprinting. The movement of the fast snapping of the Achilles, the three phases of power production. So the three phases, you know we've got the eccentric and concentric in all movements. Yeah. But when you come to power, you've actually got the ground contact time as an extra phase. So that's why there's that blurry line between ballistic and plyometric. Yeah. Because unless 
the contact time with the surface I won't say ground because it could be anything else but the surface unless that time is limited to below a certain point it can't be plyometric yeah and so sprinting is all about plyometric movement in its nature it will be just past plyometric but however if you think about it if you want to get someone more powerful you need to stick to that plyometric type of discipline so you need to be able to create a quicker reaction time put more um elasticity or potential strength and elasticity into the cuffs through the posterior chain yeah like it sounds weird but there's been a lot of studies on sprinters and one thing they have is quite rigid ankles yeah which you know for most things you wouldn't think about that but because of the amount of power they're putting into the ground and the amount of force which they need to absorb coming off the ground they need to have that rigidity to do it yeah because it effectively gives them more of a springing effect that's it so they need the strong ankle joint with the um, potential strength of the calves and Achilles to rebound up so when, when you're dealing with something where you're, say, warming that person up, you wouldn't necessarily want to undo that tightness. Listeners, we haven't spoke about this, but in a different podcast, one of the key things we need to talk about, flexibility spectrum, yeah. and where certain things should sit. So you're right. With something like lack of flexibility in the ankles, you don't mind so much of a sprinter because they need it. Yeah, so effectively you don't want to undo that because it's a structural thing that you need for the sport. Whereas what you do is potentially after the sprint, you then work on releasing something in there because that's going to benefit them potentially and by the next time they come to sprint, it'll be tight back up again. No, you just you just leave it the way it is. Because you, you've got to think about it. You've got flexibility and mobility. Yeah. So you'd want mobility, which would be... Which would be what, so, you would want mobility for the function of what they're doing. Mobility is around a joint, so it's about the movement of a joint. Flexibility is about how much you can lengthen a muscle. Perfect. You wouldn't care about the flexibility there, it would be the mobility in yeah. the ankle. And wh- whereas in, say, a, a long-distance runner, like a 10,000 metres runner, you'd be looking more at that calf um, flexibility because there's a build-up over time of calf tightness in the event because of how far they're going so you'd want to release that earlier on so you would do more work around releasing there yes so in a nutshell there's two very simple differences there yep uh the other thing that you probably want to do with someone who's a sprinter is get their heart rate up before they go into their event because you don't want them running from a cold base and trying to get up in heart rate you want them to be able to almost come in at us at an elevated heart not a peak heart rate but an elevated heart rate that's an interesting one because i think this is one sport where you wouldn't even need to worry about that because if you've done the mobility you've done the activation then you've gone into the plyometric by the time they finish the plyometric there's no doubt they're already there and it's not it's not as if you've focused on getting them there they're going to be there anyway yeah and then, so once you finish the plyometric phase, the next thing you're going to would be like short sprints. So with a sprinter, obviously, it's about getting the heart rate up and then bring it back down again. And it's it's about that process of, of getting that uh, system underway. Whereas with a long distance runner, you're trying to build them up to a specific heart rate before they start. So you're trying to warm them into that. Yes. So it's more controlled in that sense. You're not pushing maximally. Okay, so let's move it on to a different example. Let's talk about the difference between warming someone up for power and warming someone up for strength. 
So in terms of power, it'd be the same as a sprinter. So I don't really think we need to go over that point. But the difference, the key difference will be strength. I love strength. Yeah. So strength would be slightly similar to the 10K. Because in that respect, you're trying to slowly get the heart rate up. However, the key thing that makes strength different to most things is if you want to do it properly, when someone has a certain weight they need to get to, there's a lot of small warm-up sets you do to get to that point. Yeah. As a lot of the listeners out there might know, as the weight goes up, the technique needs to be smoother. There can be no second guessing and it needs to be repetitive and just instantaneous in thought process, not in movement. Mm, yeah. So by having all of these warm-up sets, your heart rate will go up, which you want. However, you've had enough repetitions of the movement to know that when you get to that working weight, the technique's going to be perfect. It's just your body being able to handle the force that you're moving. Yeah, it's greasing the groove, effectively. It's, it's That's that, it. It's that process of, of getting in there. And sometimes what you find as well is in your warm-up set, you do a set and it doesn't feel good. The previous set did, and then this one just doesn't feel good. And then you repeat that weight a second time around, and it feels all good, and you move forward. And it's that process of, of getting the neurological system engaged, the CNS system uh, firing, before you move forward. And this is where proper warm-up technique for strength is about getting that CNS firing. Whereas with power, as, as Lawrence has already said, it's about the speed element too. So it's about how quickly you can move. Yeah, because so, you're, still, you're still working the nervous system, but it's going to be the nervous system in power is going to be fried out a lot quicker than it will be with strength. Yeah. Because of the intensity of what you're doing. That's why I honestly love strength. I love it to death. And one thing that a lot of people may not know is when you've got a weight of about 150, when that's your, your level you're trying to get to, it's going to take you 45 minutes to warm up. If you've done it properly, 45 minutes. And you won't, when I say this, guys, you won't be extremely tired when you get to that weight. You would have done, let's say, two to three reps at each increment on the way up. And have probably done like 10, 15 warm-up sets, just taking your time. So, guys, just to kind of summarise everything that we spoke about, warm-ups are so essential. And I feel like, you know, once you've taken the time to properly periodise a programme, I feel like you should periodise a programme, then make the workout so make the warm-up after you've done the main workout it is to perfectly adapt to what the person is doing on that given day and it needs to always you know match up with different modalities you know if you're going into power then you want to do some ballistic stuff and no static stretching before you go into power yeah. and speed but you don't want to go straight into power stuff there's no time for the body and the mind to link up to actually prepare you to get the right results from the power exercises. Well, let's let's give the listener a genuine takeaway on this, right? So let's, let's, let's quickly break down some key differences, not all of them, that you might focus on in different types of, of training. So obviously we've got um, a focal point around, let's say, strength, power and endurance. So they're all three different things and you'd require slightly different things from the warm-ups. So we've already mentioned on power, you'd want to do something ballistic. You'd probably want to also focus a lot more attention on your glutes. And this is where the nervous system plays a major role. Yeah, and the mentality. Yeah, mentality, but nervous system, I'd say, would be the, the key. Yeah, and this is equally where, uh, when we spoke last week about um, Olympic lifting, because it's that process of moving through the movement you're about to do 
in order to get to where you want to get to. Now, this is massively different from, say, endurance, where you're, say, working at 15, 20, 25 reps on a movement. You're not going to do an Olympic lift, obviously, but let's say you're doing um, something like a squat. Your squat, when you're trying to do one rep for, for, for power or one rep for strength, is very different from your squat for endurance, where you might do 25 reps. And in an endurance workout, it's more about warming up the body enough. Yeah. And, and more, the mentality is always there. It's more about warming up the body. So you do maybe like one or two full sets of the exercises, but at a lightweight and slower, just so yeah. the body, just so the person and the body understand the movement they're about to do. Because in endurance, you're going to do things quickly or quicker than you would usually do it. Yeah, and I think endurance as well. One of the goals with endurance is to ensure that you don't get too hot. That's it. Because you want to get the body warm, but it has to be an optimal temperature. Whereas, say with something like strength, your goal is predominantly around focus on the right mindset, the right neurological engagement, and then you want to focus in on connecting with the movement. So how we talked about the, the micro steps up. I think as well, with all of these aspects, no matter which one you're doing, it's around avoiding injuries. So you have to make sure that you've addressed your imbalances. You've you've primed your body properly before yes. you start. Because imbalances are the one thing, session to session, which will cause you issues. Because on a good day, they'll be like a they'll factor in, let's say, thirty percent. On a bad day, in terms of your recovery and your readiness to do the session, they could play like a, a major role, like eighty percent, in terms of your range of motion the weights you can do so these things are always key in a warm-up going into hypertrophy i would say the key thing would be the warm-up sets yeah warm-up sets to get you ready mentally into what you're doing rather than so much warming up the muscle it's getting your mind ready to do the technique and at the speed that it needs to be done yeah the, the mindset for, for hypertrophy is massive because you're not necessary lifting anywhere near close to a max or or to the edge where whereas with endurance there's there's a resilience element that comes in because the last few reps are going to burn and be challenging with a strength element the challenge is obviously the weight the weight and with a power element it's about explosivity and control with hypertrophy it is mindset that comes into place because you're you're working at a weight that say by the end of your 10 you might barely be feeling is challenging but that's what you need to work at to maintain good form to get the muscle gains and tone that you want. And also to keep up, keep up with the tempo. Yeah. It's going to be slower reps in the hypertrophy than literally any other um, modality. And it's not because, you know, the weight makes you go at that speed. It's because you're, you need to go at that speed to elicit the gains you want. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I think this is it. So... I think we've covered most of, most of the stuff there for warm-ups. Yeah, I would say just make sure the warm-up is made after you've done the workout so that you can match them up perfectly. Trying to do it the other way around always makes it, you know, from my experience, it's always a lot harder. And I would say make sure you've got your vital areas to warm up. So make sure the, the issues where you've got genuine issues that you need to address pretty much every time is in every workout. Yep. And there's specific things for that exercise or those big exercises or that part part of the body that you're working come in as well for that workout. So if it's a squat thing and you've got a lower body issue, address, make sure that gets addressed on the day you're doing your lower body workout or your squat workout. 
and if it's a if it's a day where you're focused in the upper body that might not be so vital but there are still elements that you need to cover guys thanks for listening we'll see you next week do you want to ask us a question well now you can we're on email at trainingtalkspodcast at gmail.com alternatively you can follow us on instagram and twitter our instagram handle is trainingtalkspodcast and our twitter handle is training underscore talks